Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. I know that there's a handful of you that are always first here to listen on Monday morning. So happy Monday. I hope that you have a really nice week this week and maybe you have coffee and you're headed to work or you're getting ready to do something or go for a ride and I just hope that it's awesome. I know that spring is slowly around the corner, but it's it's literally been like a tornado here <laughs> the last like four days. It's just crazy. The wind, and I honestly think it's worse than anything else for the horses. Like they really struggle when it's windy and I feel so bad. Um, but thankfully the temperatures feel like they're going up. So wishing you good vibes, good rides this morning. I'm so excited about this episode that I did actually a while back with our farrier, Chris Gerber. He has extensive experience in his field and he had so much to tell me. I learned a lot during this episode as someone who is obviously in the industry. It is not my specialty, but I thought I knew some things and... (laughs) Chris had a lot to share. I asked him a bunch of different questions. We talked about foot confirmation, ailments, management, um, you know, why certain breeds of horses are more prone to having issues and why I see, you know, with a lot of my bigger horses, one front foot is a different shape than the other. And all these things I really had no idea about, even Um, obviously nutrition and how that affects foot integrity, uh, laminitis, all sorts of stuff. So if you have a horse or you ride a horse, this is probably an episode for you. It was super informative and I probably could have kept asking him lots of questions. This one ran a little bit long because he was just a wealth of knowledge. So I might have him back on to talk about more horse foot farrier things. He also talked about farrier school and, you know, if you're interested in getting into that field, what to start with. So we covered a lot of topics. It was a great episode. Please reach out. I don't even know. I don't think he has social media. I'll check. I'll leave it in the show notes. And uh, if you know Chris and you're someone local, please mention to him that you heard it. I'm sure he'd really appreciate that. But Without further ado, I will let you get into it. I just wanted to remind you guys that our CXO clinic that we're running on March 12th, Krista and I, uh, has early bird pricing to the end of this week. So you can go to the website, www.equestrianentrepreneur.ca to see what we're up to. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to ask. Many of you have kind of expressed to me that you're interested in starting a career in the industry or you have a business, you work for yourself. Um, this is going to be geared towards equestrian entrepreneurs managing you know, their financial foundations and also the business and marketing side of things. So we're really excited to bring this program to you and support you. Um, make sure you take a look or send it to somebody that you think could use it. So I will let you guys get into it. I hope you have an awesome day and the sun is peeking through those clouds. Welcome to the Spring in Equestrian podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Parr, and this is the place to be for all things equestrian lifestyle, horses, entrepreneurship, and inspiration for all of your equestrian endeavors. I'm here to get your insider's addition to what it's really like having a business or career in the equestrian industry and find out how people balance their passion and their businesses. I'm so excited to have you here with me, so come along for the ride. 
You guys have heard me talk about Starline Equine Bodywork. Well, the VIP waitlist is up and the course is set to start at the end of March. Stuck Up is an online equine kinesiology taping course for horse owners, trainers, riders, and bodyworkers looking to add to their skill set. VIP waitlist members will get access to all kinds of taping-related info and goodies and have the first access to enrollment in the course. I actually participated in the first round of the kinesiology taping course. As someone who participates in a lot of online courses and education, it was one of the most well put together courses I have actually done. There was video instruction for every step. It was very content intensive. And on top of that, there was a, a Facebook support group where everyone posted as they went through the modules and was able to get feedback. If you are involved in horses, you're a body worker, you're a trainer, even you just have your own horse and want to learn how to make them more comfortable, this is probably something I would suggest looking into. Student numbers are limited, so grab your spot on the waitlist at starlinebodywork.com. And of course, you can always reach out to them and ask questions if you're interested in learning more. I always hear from so many of you that you're looking to get into the industry or into a position in a barn. And if you are an equestrian shopping for a job in this market, then I would suggest you check out Hot Equestrian. They have an equestrian-specific job board, a job seeker database where you can leave your contact and resume for those looking to hire, and VIP services for hiring businesses. They also offer business management solutions for equestrian entrepreneurs and have an essentials online boutique stocked with jewelry, housewares, skincare, and products for your horse sourced from North America. Visit www.hopeec.com for more information. Um, I didn't grow up around horses, uh, um, and it wasn't until I was in my later teens, uh, I had a girlfriend at the time who was into horses, and that got me into, uh, into taking lessons. Uh, later, um, later in my 20s, I would say uh, early, early to mid-20s, I ended up uh, buying a horse and that sort of thing, and um, but I didn't really, uh, I didn't really start my farrier journey until I was about 30. Um, uh, up uh, before that, I, I wrote software and uh, ended up managing, um, being a project manager at a tech company in Waterloo uh, until I was about 30 years old. And that's when I, uh, that's when I made the switch. So. What a career change. Yes. Uh, uh, a very large career change. I, I had grown up on a farm and, uh, uh, the the pressures and and all the fluorescent lights were getting to me and uh, yeah I just kind of I had been thinking about it for for a little while and and uh, yeah I, once I hit thirty I kind of thought well you know what if I don't do this soon it's you know it's not going to happen right so so yeah, I took the plunge. That's amazing for people who are perhaps interested in knowing where to start with that if they're interested in the farrier route, what did you end up doing when you made the plunge? Well, I, uh, I went to school, a uh, fairly short course, uh, which most of them in, in North America are. Um, I, I ended up in Oklahoma and uh, I ended up staying down there, uh, kind of split between Oklahoma and Texas for the better, the, the better part of a year after I had done my school. So my, the, the first part of my apprenticeship was was uh, southern Oklahoma and and uh, some some in, in around Dallas, Texas, I'd say. Wow, that's so uh, cool. Yeah, and then and then when I came back, I, I apprenticed uh, in Ontario uh, for a few years yet before uh, before I was completely on my own. 
Yeah. And then what was the transition for you um, in terms of kind of starting your own business and building up clientele? Is that something that you're thinking about when you're apprenticing? Yeah, it is. And, and it's kind of one of those things I would say um, anyone who, who is thinking to, to, about getting into it, I, I think uh, what, what happens to a lot of people, I think, is that we, we just kind of start apprenticing with someone and uh, we end up kind of modeling our business sort of in the way that, that, that their business is modeled. We end up oftentimes working on the same types of horses because we make those connections. Um, what I would recommend doing rather than that would be to try to figure out what it is that you like first. Um, you know, if there's particular disciplines or if you have a, you know, a particular interest, whether that's racetrack, Western horses, you know, dressage horses, and then try and find mentors in that area. So you sort of start making the right connections um, right from the beginning. Um, and if you don't know, that's, that's fine too. Then I would really recommend uh, working for as many different people as you can, you know, work if you could find a way to work for someone at the racetrack one day a week or something like that. And, uh, you know, work, work for someone who, who spends a lot of time around Western horses and then someone who does a lot of jumpers and just to kind of get a feel for what it is that you like. And, and then kind of, then you can kind of focus, you know, focus more, I guess, after that. Yeah, absolutely. Is there any words of wisdom or pieces of advice that you have for people who are entering that type of career in terms of building a reputation because people when they find someone they like they really tend to stick with them and I wonder this is my total external opinion I wonder if it's hard to break through some of those barriers um, in finding clients that kind of really align with what you want to do yeah um when you start out it's it's tough there there's no question about it and and um like I, I don't even know, it would be difficult even for a well-established farrier to, to pick up and move to a new area right? and have to start over. Um, you know, people don't necessarily know who you are and well, and, and, you know, people generally don't pick, pick a farrier or a coach by just doing a, you know, getting on Google and doing a search, right? Like these are all things that, um, you know, you, you want, you want a referral, right? You want to talk to someone who's used them before and, and that sort of thing. So it's, it is very tough to, um, to break in, but um, what, a, what, what ends up happening with a lot of people uh, is your, your mentors as you're apprenticing and, and you're getting better. Um, if your mentors are busy, they're getting phone calls, uh, work that they can't do. And if they think it's something you can handle, that's often how you sort of get started is, is you get kind of hand-me-down work. Right. Yeah. And that makes sense. Um, almost like subcontracting, I guess, until you start building up your own reputation. But yeah. does the structure of your business look like now? Has that changed significantly over time? And is it ideal for you or do you still have goals in the ways that you want to structure your business as far as like schedule of the day to day? Uh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm pretty happy with, with where it is uh, right now. I mean, it's kind of, um, you know, you, you have the same challenges that anyone who runs their own small business has, right? Um, like when, when I worked in Waterloo, I worked in the engineering department, um, 
and and I was I was responsible for a lot of things, but there there's a lot of things I wasn't responsible for. You know, like we had a marketing department, a sales department, tech support, accounting. Um, when you run your own business, you're sort of all of those departments, right? And they're and they're all kind of important. So, you know, if I had advice to people to give to people, I I'd say you know, you know everyone wants to shoe a horse and that that's that's kind of why we get into this and and that's definitely the most fun part but all of those other parts are important and it's it's very easy to neglect the marketing the sales the support right um that that we need to give people so it's uh, you know that would um you know that that would certainly be uh be some advice i would give as, as far as my current structure i mean yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. I do um, mostly English horses, uh, dressage, hunters, jumpers, eventers, um, and then and, and a few, you know, kind of backyard trail places as well. But that's that's pretty much the bulk of it. And it's um, very I'm very fortunate to live in a very, very horse dense area. So I really don't travel more than probably a half an hour from my house now. Yeah, which I think is perhaps a little bit different from other farriers that at least I've had this conversation with. I know that it involves a heavy amount of traveling sometimes. Um, so it's interesting that you're able to have that boundary in your business and it works for you. Is there, and, and in speaking of just the whole entrepreneurship aspect is a lot of people, obviously they're getting into it for one reason, but there's a whole operations and backend side that most people don't have that much experience in for interest sake just in your perspective and can you compare kind of pricing for people listening um when you are doing some work in the states versus what you think is the going rate or comparable to your rates here um when you're looking at like the cost of barrier work for for people i just think it would be interesting if there were any differences or if it was relatively the same or the range that, you know, people might know, not know about how much of a range there is when it comes to even pricing as a farrier. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was really interesting. So in, in, in rural Oklahoma, it was very, very cheap. And where, where the school was, you would have a, a heck of a hard time making a good living as a farrier. Um, it was, you know, there, there was some some higher end rodeo work, but the, the bulk of your work in that in that particular area would have been backyard horses. Um, wasn't a lot of money in that area, modest homes, um, modest horses, modest little farms. And um, the, the, the price was quite low. Um, when I worked in for a little bit in Texas, I, I worked for a, a guy and uh, he was based just outside of Dallas, and basically, he wanted to shoe English horses and charge an, a, a pile of money for it. And so he would just basically drive around the edge of Dallas, all the way around the city, and shoe horses. Basically, you know, right on the edge of the city, they were all high-end dressage horses and and jumpers. And because um, I, I mean, w when you're in Texas, if you get away from the big cities, everything's a quarter horse. Right. And, and it's all Western sports. But if you stay around the big cities, you'll find uh, you'll find more English sports as well. So so that was kind of, you know, that was kind of his model. And at that time uh, he charged and this is going back quite a ways. 
he charged a, a, a terrific amount of money for, for shoeing those horses. So like what's a reset that that long ago that he was charging like a full horseshoe oh. reset? Yeah, I want to say it was in around 250 US at that time, wow. which, which that's going back, you know, that's going back 15, 16 years. That's crazy. Yeah, so cool. And yeah, then, as so, far as, sorry, keep going. Yeah, but, but um, if you got more than an hour outside of that city, it just, the bottom fell out, right? So um, it was, it was extremely sort of geographically dependent and, and he, he knew it and, and um, you know, he, he sort of structured his business around that, right? So. Yeah, that's a smart thing to do. As far as in Ontario here for people just kind of curious about the ranges of prices when it comes to farriers, do you have, do, do you have any kind of perspective on what that looks like depending on the level of horses or the areas, um, the disciplines, like, I don't know if that changes the way that things are priced. Well, I think if you want a general idea where the houses are the most expensive, getting your horse shot is going to be the most expensive. And it's also going to be probably the most expensive places to board a horse, uh, right. to get training. It's just kind of, you stay around the big cities and, and heavily populated areas and everything is more expensive, right? So just kind of as a, as a general rule. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so interesting for anybody listening. I mean, just because I'm sure they, it's always helpful to kind of compare and hear other perspectives. As far as your career, did you ever have a time where you perhaps got a little burnt out or you had to figure out how to balance your personal life with your career because in all things horses a lot of the times especially when it's someone's passion it can kind of take over did you ever experience that um yeah i i i would say i'm probably experiencing some of that right now um I, i'm probably the wrong person to ask um about uh personal life balance, uh, at the moment, but it's, um, I, I have helped usually a few days a week and, uh, that person's been dealing with, with some of their own health issues. So I've been a little short staffed for the last number of months. So that's, uh, that's really kind of set me back. But, um, normally I would say what, um, you know, when you start out, you're, you're really, you're, you're waiting for the phone to ring. You're not busy enough. And once that snowball kind of starts down the hill, it's very easy to all of a sudden look up one day and go, wow, I am, you know, I'm too busy, right? So um, one thing that I've learned to do is if I have a hobby or something that I want to do or a personal activity of some kind, I schedule it. Uh, because if I wait until I have free time, then, then I don't have free time right? I'll, I'll fill it with work or they'll, they'll always seem to be something else. So, um, you know, I, I really, I try to schedule, I try to schedule fun as well as work. Um, because if not, um, yeah, it just, yeah, well, you know what it's like when you get busy, right? If you, if you wait till you have time, you, you never have time, right? Yeah. So. That's such great advice <laughs> for anyone listening. I think actually scheduling in that free time in that white space, because people, anyone involved in horses and many entrepreneurs or anybody who has their own business can really fill up that space quickly. So I love that. Um, 
can you tell me, I think we'll run into the actual specifics when we're talking about courses and hoof care and all sorts of different things, because I had many questions I wanted to ask you around that. Can we talk a bit about some of the most common confirmation issues you see in horses that impact their ability to perform? Um, there's a lot of different things that <laughs> different things like I think I mentioned club feet, toes, toe in, toe out, um, different things that can affect the way that obviously the horse moves and the, their capabilities, but um, specifically when looking at foot confirmation first, what are some of the most common issues you see? And then for people who have a horse with one of those common issues, you know, what are some of the regular ways that we can maintain those issues or be preventative to not let them get any worse? <laughs> How much time do you have? No, it's so, so broad spectrum. Like there's so much we can talk about, but I'm thinking just like generalizing those because they do come up a lot. Like people, so I, I think sometimes people don't even understand the, you know, the differences. And sometimes even when they're looking at horses, they not notice how angles and confirmation absolutely affect so many different areas of the horse. But when it comes to their feet, it's the most important area that we want to have really solid confirmation. So if you want to speak on it for a bit and if it gets too long, I'll move to the next one. Yeah, you can just cut me off. Well, I guess the, first I'd say like as a general rule, hoof confirmation is is a, a reflection of the conformation of the rest of the horse and especially the limb. So if, if we start thinking about hoof confirmation in that regard, then then we're talking about much more than just the feet, yeah. right? So, um, and there there are certain, you know, certainly some very common limb confirmations right so like you mentioned towing in towing out those sorts of things when when viewed from the front um and they do have an effect on the feet you know um it gets to the point where it, it's kind of a fun test if you if you have a bunch of random photos of the bottom of a horse's foot and you haven't seen the horse before it, and you can start to guess what the leg actually looks like above it you know you can see if that horse is towed in or towed out or has maybe like an angular limb deformity or something like that. So um, the, the, the two definitely go hand in hand. Um, what I will say in general about conformational issues, once the bones are set, they're set. And once you get a horse that's, um, you know, approaching a year old, if there's, his conformation is his conformation and that's, that's not to change, right? So if he's, if he's got a rotational, deformity like he toes in or toes toes out or an angular deformity or something like that he has it for life um and, and you you really go into um kind of management mode at, at that point as a, as a farrier um where you try your best to all i guess all of those um abnormalities cause certain stresses in joints and on the hoof capsule itself um and, and you try to, with your trimming and shoeing, balance those out as best you can to, even though the limb is crooked, try to distribute the forces and the loads so, so that it's as close to normal as we can get. Um, so that, that's, a, that's kind of a mile high um, sort of answer. I mean, I, I certainly didn't yeah. get specific about 
about a lot of yeah. these things because I mean we could pick one you know we could pick towing in and we could probably talk about that for an hour if you wanted to absolutely one of the things like I'll get you to speak on that in that case as well is maybe like horses with low heels and kind of a bit long in the toe and like angles over time and how important it is to maintain the proper angles and what people should be looking for when we're trying to create the right shape. Obviously it's different for every horse. Um, but I know we've had conversations about like, you know, crushed heels and really like kind of horses without barely any soles because they're just the way that they're conformationally funny so maybe you can talk a little bit on that because yes like what and I love that you mentioned once that horse is you know coming a year old that any confirmation issues like they're going to be there they're not just going to grow out of them um yeah. but one of the things that like definitely can change over time when a horse is mature depending on how their feet are getting done is like the angles and the length of the toe and the heel that they have and how important that is if you want to speak on it a little bit. Yeah. So there's, I mean, again, <laughs> this yeah. is kind of a tough one because you can you can talk for hours on what constitutes balance or or hoof balance. Right. And it's a it's um it's also very contentious because there there's no real universally accepted definition uh, amongst professionals. And that that includes uh research veterinarians, right? So we're getting there. Um, we know a whole lot more than we used to. And, and when I say no, we can kind of state certain things as fact because they've been proven clinically. Um, but, but there's still a lot of questions to be answered. But there, there's a lot, of, a lot of guidelines we go by when we look at the bottom of the foot to determine how much toe in relation to how much heel there should be. Um, things we look at from the front of the foot or from the side of the foot to to kind of determine whether we think this foot is in balance for the rest of for this particular horse and, and his limb. So um, most of these external landmarks tie back into uh, the, the bony structure inside the foot. So we're really trying to keep things as, um, you know, like I say, as balanced, whatever that means as, as possible. And um, you know, it varies there. There are, there are certainly horses that, you know, the toe is almost, they almost need more than they have. And there's certainly horses that really should have a whole lot less. Right. And, and, um, you know, you get as close as you can with the trim. And then, um, you know, if you're assuming you're putting a shoe or something on after you can, you can play with the mechanics even more when you, when you add an appliance to the bottom of the foot. Um, if you want to talk specifically about about those horses, I think you're kind of referring to like some of those thoroughbreds that you see with the really long pasterns. Um, that's a that's a confirmation that I'm not a huge fan of when it comes to long term soundness. Um, that's a real difficult one to to try and shoe your way out of. Um, they they seem to uh, they have that really long sloping pastern and uh, this foot that sort of sits on the end of it is way out in front of the limb. And they, they, they take an awful pounding on the back part of the foot. And those are feet you often see with the crushed or underrun heels, the sole that wants to be really thin, um, very, very weak elastic structures in the back of the foot. And, and those are, again, there, there's things we can do to try and manage them 
as best we can, but those are really, um, that long pastern is just a great big long lever. And um, slowly over time, often those horses, you'll start to see that fetlock get closer and closer to the ground um, as things start to break down. So I'm, I'm not a huge fan of that particular confirmation. Um, I've just, I know too many 25 year old ho horses whose, whose fetlocks are almost touching the ground. Yeah. And, um, you know, they just, um, they don't seem to hold up long term. Yeah. And I mean, we talked about off the track specifically, um, and you were mentioning to me how you felt that it was at, like more of a prevalent confirmation that they particularly like the longer pasterns for the push and power that they get on the track. But as far as longevity goes and what you just mentioned in soundness, it's really hard as a, like having that horse in a second career when it's still continuing to perform. And I mean, maybe you can just add to that a little bit about what you're seeing as far as patterns with the off the track as a farrier. Cause I think that would be interesting for people. Yeah, I mean, so you're exactly right. And, and I don't know that it's so much that the, the trainers or the breeders like a long pasture. I think they like horses that are fast. Right. And, yeah. and, and horses that win get bred. And if there's particular confirmations that lend themselves well to running quickly, those traits sort of naturally filter through. And, and, um, and I, I just, I think I'm seeing it more and more with off the track thoroughbreds. It seems like those pasterns are getting longer and longer. And um, it does, it creates a, a really long lever out in front of the leg and it really allows them to load up their suspensory and get a lot of spring and, and, and power um, when they're running, but they don't race 20 year olds or 15 year olds, right? They, they race two year olds. And I think, um, you know, they, they're, they're not, it's not all that important to have to, to breed horses with a confirmation that will stand up for a long period of time because they're raced so young. Right. Um, you know, I think if that were different, um, you know, the, the, the breed would sort of evolve by itself because uh, a lot of these horses just wouldn't stay sound. Yeah. Yeah. And that's such an interesting point to be made because on top of um, everything else, the off the track is also becoming more and more and more popular for second careers. So it's interesting for people to hear when they're looking at these horses, some things to consider. Um, and even just as far as maintenance, I mean, if you have a horse that already is kind of confirmationally like that, there's lots that can at least be done in a preventative way. Um, and I wanted to circle back really quickly uh, to a question that came up in my head when we were talking about uh, confirmation issues that you see in horses. And I know it's really generalized, but one of the things that I've noticed quite a lot with a lot of horses is like asymmetry in their hooves, the way that one usually is kind of distinctly different than the other and how much correction should we be trying to do or should we be trying to, I, I realize it's horse specific, but what is your usual um, approach when you're dealing with horses that have like asymmetric hooves? And what I like about what you've mentioned to me in the past is like everything that we're doing to try to change or support a horse that needs to be 
a little bit corrected is that we do it over really, really long periods of time and make very, very small incremental changes so that you're not like, of course, drastically changing the way that the horse is maneuvering on the ground. Yeah, but, so I, yeah. yeah, I think you're, you're kind of referring to, you know, what we'll often call high-low syndrome where you know, one, one foot is a much different shape and, and often a different angle than, than the other foot seen, seen mostly on fronts. Um, although to a lesser degree, you can see it on hind feet as well. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting one. And, um, if you look at older farrier textbooks, you won't hear any mention of it, like zero. And, um, there's a lot of the older horse people around will tell you that um, 50 years ago, there was no such thing, or, or it was almost unheard of. You know, if you had a club-footed horse, okay, fine, but <clears throat> he was club-footed on both, right? Like it wasn't this, um, it wasn't these, you didn't see these mismatched feet, and that seems to be a rather, uh, a much newer phenomenon. Um, from my understanding, the jury is still out a little bit on that. There are a lot of people researching as to why this is occurring. Um, some people think it just, it's just nothing more than bloodlines that have, that have crept into, um, into our horses. Um, there are others, and, and I, I think there might be some, I think it's a good argument. Um, horses are getting taller, right? Like um, our, our warm bloods, even our thoroughbreds, they seem to be getting taller and taller. Like a, a hundred years ago, horses were short, right? Like as a general rule. And um, as we've developed these breeds up and, and developed them taller, the proportion of the length of their neck to the length of their legs has gotten a little askew. So we haven't made their necks longer at the same rate that we've made their legs longer. And it does make it harder for them to put their nose on the ground to eat. Ah, okay. And they, 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 you'll see these taller horses really start to adapt this split stance, like grazing stance, yes. where they'll put one leg forward, one leg back, because they can't keep both legs straight in front of them and actually reach the ground. And so the theory goes, they develop one side or one way that they like to pre or, or prefer to stand. So often it's right foot back and left foot forward. And that's how they stand as they're growing, as they're maturing. And, and once they have matured, and that is the cause of this asymmetry. Now, I don't know. I don't think we're at a point where anyone can say 100% if that is the cause, but um there's there's one real interesting statistic that does seem to kind of add some clout to that argument, and that's um, it's about um, about three out of every four horses statistically are right-handed. Um, just and and like in humans, I think it's either I think it's seven of eight or eight of nine or something like that is is right-handed. So I think it's like a, a one in seven or a one in eight humans is left-handed. And it's a one in four for horses. And they looked at thoroughbreds in the UK as a statistic. So they, they, they looked at a whole bunch of thoroughbreds with mismatched feet. 75% of them, the right foot is higher than the left. 
And what's interesting is 75% of horses are right foot or right side dominant. Yeah. Um, when, when you look at a horse who has a higher uh, hoof angle on one of its front feet, that's the foot that's always back underneath them when they're grazing. And it's the other foot, the, the more splayed out, lowered angled foot that they have in front of them. So it's interesting. It's, it's like I say, I don't think we're quite there yet as to nailing down exactly if that's the cause or not, but it is a very interesting argument um, kind of put forth. And the other thing that might give that a bit of clout too is you don't, you tend not to see mismatched feet on ponies or, or shorter breeds. Right. Right. Like anything under 14 hands, no problem. They almost, they, you, it's very, very difficult to find a mismatched uh, feet on anything 14 hands. Or, this or is shorter. So interesting. I yeah, it's all so yeah. Wow, very cool. Okay, well, I'm glad that I asked that question. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, that was kind of part of the question. I mean, the other part is what? So, what do we do, right? What yeah. do we do about it? Yeah. Um, and again, there's there's no real hard, clear consensus. Um, there's kind of a general consensus that, that we treat each foot and limb as an individual. And so we apply our same rules for balance to the low foot as we do the high foot, but that might mean that we actually do different things. You know, on one foot, we might try and move the brake over back, um, that sort of thing, or, you know, it, it, it kind of depends on how those feet map out. Um, but, but the general rule is, is we kind of apply our same rules for balance and treat each foot individually and, and, um, and kind of go from there. So, um, I, yeah. I tend, I tend not to get too drastic if the horse is moving well, um, if they're moving well and things are going well, then, um, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things. How much do you want to mess with, yeah. with that? Right. Um, if they're not going well, there's a few different theories and things to try uh, as well on those horses to try and get them, let's say, moving more evenly. It's not necessarily that they're lame, but when you have two different front legs, um, you know, there is a chance that you might move differently. Yeah. Right? So, so um, you know, there are certainly some things to try. And what's interesting, next time you get uh, around one of those horses where it's, where it's quite obvious um, that, that one foot is a lot higher than the other, get them kind of squared up. And, and if you need to stand on a stool or something behind them and look at their scapulas over their back, and they will be very, that asymmetry goes all the way up, right up to the top of the scapula. Of course. Yeah. You know, so they're, they're, they're notoriously difficult to, to saddle fit um, because they're, they're, they're not symmetrical. And, and that asymmetry goes, goes all the way to the top. A hundred percent. I mean, I have a list of, of horses in my head right now. That's why I asked this question because we do deal with that. We, and it does go all the way up through the leg and, and into the shoulder. And you can sometimes even visually see and not a lameness, but an abnormality or like, just like I mentioned, an asymmetry in the directions of the horse and, and the way that they move. And that's so interesting um, that that is kind of, but it's, it, it's, it runs so true in my mind. I, I'm interested to hear what everyone listening is thinking about that, but moving well, on. I, yeah. And, 
you you can tell too like those horses if you if you you know before you ever ride that horse for the first time if you look at the feet and they're really grossly mismatched and one is considerably steeper than the other yeah he's going to take the um what once you start getting into canter work uh they'll have one side that is is much freer than the other exactly. and it'll be the it'll be the lower foot side every single time that'll be the lead that they prefer um they'll they'll bend better they'll feel more comfortable that'll be the lead they want to pick up and that's also like i say when they're in that grazing stance that's the leg that's out in front yeah and so they're they're always kind of stretching that and they 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 feel horrible when you start trying to go on the on the high foot lead yeah. um yeah um you know one of the things i've heard some trainers talk about is is um you know working them on that let's call it the off side or their weak side um you know like 75 percent of the like you know if you're if you're going to ride and, and do canter work then 75 percent of your canter work should be on that weak side to really kind of strengthen and stretch it out yeah um, that sort of thing absolutely i mean yeah i it's resonating so much in my mind and i'm sure it will with everyone listening that because it's something i've experienced with horses i've had for many years that it's just been they're you know that's just how they are and how and i've always wondered why <laughs> um but it makes so much sense especially when you're relaying it to under saddle work but one of the things also that i'm sure everybody has at least heard of if not constantly dealt with in their career with horses is abscesses can you just give us a little brief background about what it is why it happens or how it happens and then usually the the go-to treatment plan for abscesses yeah well basically kind of over if you want to oversimplify it, it it's 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 a bacterial infection inside the hook so it's it's no different than if you had an infection in your finger, right? Where if you got a cut or something uh, and it got infected. So um, there, there's a few different ways that it can, that it can occur. Uh, probably the most obvious, but, but probably less common is, is an actual puncture wound, right? So, you know, a horse steps on something sharp, it pokes into the bottom of the foot a little bit too deep, maybe not enough uh, deep enough to make them lame right away, but you get some bacteria in there and you know yeah. a, few, a few days goes by and you know now you have this abscess so um you know that's like i say that that's it's probably less common um than, than some of the other ways but uh i i think more commonly when we have feet that are less well so i'll back up for a second unhealthy feet are way more prone to abscess so your flat-footed horse your horse with laminitis or white line disease or you know thin sole or or horse with bad flares and just poor integrity in the hoof wall um those horses will will abscess way more often than real good solid footed horses and and i think what happens in those horses is uh, a couple of things one it's just easier for bacteria to get in if, if the hoof wall is compromised from white line disease or laminitis um it's just easier for that for that bacteria to to kind of work its way in um in in thin-soled horses they're uh, much more likely to bruise and a, a bad enough sole bruise can cause ne necrotic tissue uh, which can fester into an abscess so um you'll see good-footed horses 
Not that they're impervious to abscesses, but it's way less likely. Um, you'll see the same crappy footed horses every spring that'll want to want to abscess on you. So um, yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell anyway. Yeah, and as as horse owners and, and for everyone listening, I think one of the big scary things with abscesses, even though once we know it's an abscess, usually it's something that hopefully is quite treatable and, and can resolve, is that um, they usually can sometimes present as like three-legged lameness. So um, people tend to really have scared reactions when horses come out with, with abscesses. Can you just walk everyone through the process of how it heals really briefly and, and how we aid in that healing? Yeah, I guess the first thing I will say, and I don't want to, I don't want to scare anyone or freak anyone out, but um, they are generally, you know, something quite minor that a horse does heal from 100%, not a big deal. Yeah. Um, if they get deep enough and can't be vented and um, fester and fester away, uh, it is possible to get infection into, into the bone. Mm -hmm. And that's really, really bad news. That's uh, surgical intervention uh, with a not always a great prognosis, or at least a great prognosis to return to 100% soundness. So yeah, I mean, abscesses, generally when your horse goes three-legged lame, you'd rather it be an abscess than a broken bone, but they are something to, to take seriously because, um, you know, you don't want to mess about with them because, uh, like I say, um, you know, there are, you know, fairly rare, but, but not unheard of cases where, where an abscess can, um, can, can end up being the end of a horse. And, yeah. and um, we don't like to see that, but uh, so I guess, um, the first thing, if you have to guess, then it's likely not an abscess. Or if you think your horse is just mildly off one day and then the next day appears markably worse, um, you know, those are all kind of telltale signs. Or like you mentioned, it just comes out of the blue. They were fine. You know, I've, I've heard of people going out, riding their horse in the evening, having a nice ride, putting them in the stall overnight. And when, uh, uh, when the staff goes to turn the horse out in the morning, they can't hardly get it out of the stall. Yeah, it's that lame. So they can come on very quickly. Um, you want to call your vet or farrier um, as quickly as possible. And what they likely do is look, uh, you know, you're looking for things like heat, uh, pulsing in the feet, signs of inflammation in the foot. Um, when they're that sore, um, you can't miss it. You know, that, that foot gets hot. Um, they start getting a digital pulse. Um, there's obvious signs of inflammation. And if the abscess can be uh, located uh, with, a, with a hoof tester or something like that, and it's, and it's obvious where it is, then um, they're, they're often opened up a little bit. Um, you know, I'm careful if I'm doing it. I'm also not a veterinarian. So, um, you know, there's kind of this fine line sometimes between, you know, our, is what you're doing routine farrier work or veter veterinary surgery, right? <laughs> so, so we definitely, you know, I'm not cutting into live tissue. Um, that's for sure, right? But if it looks really close to the surface and, and, and I'm pretty sure where it is, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll give it a flick with the hoof knife and, and see if I can open it up. And um, basically, 
it's important to get it draining as fast as you can. And, and once you relieve that, that pressure, that's when the horses typically start to sort of make the turn. And rather than getting worse every day, now they're getting markedly better. So um, getting the pressure off it and then trying to make sure that it doesn't become reinfected. So Epsom salt soaks, um, poultice pads, all of that good stuff. And in fact, the poultice pads um, can start and the soaking can start um, before the abscess is even draining. Um, they they kind of help to soften up the foot and, uh, and allow the abscess to burst uh, a little bit easier. Um, I would caution people um, if the abscess is not draining or has not burst, I wouldn't soak the foot with Epsom salt or treat with iodine or anything like that. Um, those are those are drying agents, and we want to try and keep that foot soft to allow the the abscess to blow out. Um, if we if we dry it out and make the sole even harder than it is, um, sometimes we can kind of well, we're, we're being sort of counterproductive. Um, now that all changes once it's open. Once it's open and draining, absolutely disinfect the spot. Epsom salt soaks, that's, uh, those are great. Yeah, <laughs> awesome to clarify for everyone because I think there is some sometimes confusion around the process of treating it or what people should be doing. And obviously the best advice is to immediately contact your farrier vet. Um, but this is really educational and helpful for people listening because I know that at one point or another, sometimes you might be dealing with something like this. So moving on to the other thing I really, really wanted to ask you about was um, footing. And, you know, what are some things people really need to consider or perhaps don't consider um, when they're working their horses on different types of footing uh, as far as we'll cover the undersaddle portion. I mean, in my experience, it's been interesting um, at some facilities. I think I, I was mentioning to you when we were talking about, I had a pre-purchase with a horse a, a while ago and um, it had kind of irritation on both front suspensories, which was really like nerve wracking. And I showed the vet the footing it was working on and they were like, okay, this is the answer. It's really interesting how too deep or too hard and shallow or different textures and surfaces can affect um, the way that you know the horse's soundness in general and of course their feet what are your thoughts around footing what is the optimal kind of way that we can work our horses to protect them but also not bubble wrap them to a point where they they have to always be worked on the same surfaces yeah well i guess i guess maybe i'll start with like <clears throat> my ideal surface is uh is uh, i i like natural footings so, um, you know, kind of that loose layer on top with a nice solid base underneath. Um, and, and the idea is that the foot is allowed to slide a bit when it, when it decelerates upon land, um, but becomes stable prior to and, and kind of remains stable throughout the stance, like mid stance phase, right? Yeah. So the horse is moving forward, the foot hits the ground, there has to be some give, that foot has to be allowed to slide a little bit. But by time, by the time it's in full weight bearing, it needs to be stable, right? Um, and that's where that's where you get in trouble if 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 footing is too deep, the foot's actually still settling into the into the footing during uh, mid stance, which it, which isn't good. <clears throat> um, what we see with a lot of the newer synthetic footings is is you have the opposite problem. 
So there isn't enough slide and enough give. And the, and the, the, the foot comes to a complete stop right when it hits the ground. And that seems to be um, really hard on horses suspensories in particular, um, other issues as well. Uh, just one sec, I gotta take a drink. Yeah, no problem. <clears throat> yeah, um, now not all the synthetics are created equal. Um, a lot of them are kind of mixed with a bit of sand and I like those better. Um, the ones that I, I really don't like are the, are the really hard packed synthetics. <coughs> um, and you do see those at a lot of the bigger venues. Um, and our, uh, a lot of our higher end horses really have to spend a lot of time working on those footings. And they, they do it for a reason. So like it's not all cons, right? They're, they're, they're weatherproof. You could dump a, a foot of water on those things and ride the next day. Yeah. Um, very little maintenance or at least less maintenance. Um, there's little to no dust, right? So, <clears throat> you know, a lot of the larger venues like it be, uh, mostly because of, of how weatherproof they are, right? It's a, it's a very consistent footing and it really doesn't matter. They're, they're hurricane proof, right? So um, things don't have to be canceled or postponed uh, because of weather, uh, things like that, but they really don't do our horses a lot of, a lot of favors. So there's, um, you know, um, I guess in general, when you're talking about different, different surfaces, um, you want enough traction on the bottom of that horse's foot to perform in a particular discipline safely and effectively while still in a you know, while, while still allowing some natural slide, yeah. right. Um, during, during impact. So, <clears throat> um, depending on the footing that you're about to, you know, compete on, that might mean, you know, if it's, if it is one of the newer synthetic footings, that means there's probably too much traction already. Um, so you, you certainly don't need an aggressive shoe or, you know, studs or corks if you're jumping, that sort of thing. Um, you know, so, so it's always kind of that balance. You, you don't want horses to be slipping around too much, but, but um, at the same time, gluing that foot to the ground is really not good for them either, right? And um, on, those, on those really hard packed synthetic footings, you jump way over, you know, you, you, you jump as high as you want and uh, just in a flat shoe, no corks, no studs, no nothing. Um, and it's still almost too much traction. So you, you don't have to, definitely don't have to worry about adding any traction to those, um, to, uh, onto a shoe for those footings. Um, some of the other footings, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, eventers have it tough, right? Um, you know, they're, they're galloping across grass maybe it rained the night before now they have to jump and then and now they're into uh into a ring um you know with with synthetic footing um do, doing a dressage test right so it's a you know it's 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 tricky what do you do for those horses right um you know in those situations we have a lot of you know studs or screw-ins that you know we can really change a lot of the traction sort of on the fly um during the day without actually pulling a shoe off and things like that but it's still it, it gets tricky um for sure yeah well it's really interesting and it's something for everyone to consider just thinking it you know about the surfaces that they usually work their horse on and and whether it might be a little bit too deep or might have a little too much traction um and i'm 
I'm not sure that this is your recommendation, but we get a lot of professionals that come on and talk about the importance of having diverse terrain, like for the horses, as far as turnout and under saddle work and that kind of thing. Do you think it's helpful for them to be worked on multiple different types of surfaces? That's a good question. And I'm, I'm honestly not, I'm, I, I can't say from my own personal experience, I'm a hundred percent sure what the correct answer is for that. Yeah. Um, I don't think you want to take, so horses react very differently if they, if they're not used to that really sticky synthetic stuff. So you don't want the, you don't want to take a horse and walk onto one of, in, into one of those arenas and compete if he's never set foot on one of those before. It, it would be a good idea to school on that a bit and get them used to it um, because they do kind of change. The, they have to kind of place their feet a little bit different and, and they can, you know, they, they don't always feel super comfortable when they walk out on that stuff. Um, that said, being what it is, I wouldn't want to school on that stuff every day. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd, I'd be a little, I'd be a little worried about it. So yeah, probably somewhere in the middle is the right answer. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I think about it often and, um, and I think that's informative for people. I mean, maybe it's something we haven't even considered, um, because horses do have to, to change and adapt to the surfaces that they're being worked on. So and what you mentioned too about the, the the newer synthetic is the weatherproof, how weatherproof it is, and and that's kind of the biggest benefit of it. But the other question I had for you around weather in general was, you know, how do the seasons in Canada affect the way that that we should be managing our horses' hooves? Is there anything that we should be doing differently in consideration with the seasons? Um. Yeah, I guess. Um, to me, to me, we see the most problems in, in feet during seasonal transitions. So whether that's spring to summer, you know, summer to fall or, or fall to winter, um, that's when we see, uh, for, for whatever reason, we see the most problems, right? Like once spring is set in and things and the feet have been wet for a while, they seem to do better than they do one, as you transition into a wet season, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, depending on kind of how much you want to get into this, I mean, we see feet um, coming out of a wet season, going into a dry season, they, they really tighten up and, and almost get smaller. And, and the opposite happens if they, if they've been really, really dry and then go into a wet season, it does make shoeing a little bit tricky. Um, feet that have been and, and we'll see this uh, not only in seasonal transitions, but horses that are coming back from down south, right? Depending on where they've been, it's fairly moist in Florida, but there's not all horses go there. And, um, you know, I've, I've had some horses come back from some really dry areas and, uh, and they're, they're usually gone for the winter. So, of course, when they come back, it's Ontario spring, which is mud and wet. And they go from very, very dry to um, extremely wet and um, it's almost impossible to keep the shoes on. The feet swell up and actually overgrow the shoe. Um, you, it, it's interesting, you go, you go to reset these horses and you, you, know, you pull the shoe off, you trim the foot and you can't nail it back on. Like it's, it's too small. Like you often have to put them up a size, um, you know, that, that kind of stuff. So 
I mean, we see that even just in our our seasonal transitions to a to a lesser degree. Um, some of the things you can do, honestly, pick the feet out regularly during muddy seasons. You may even want to consider um, like a, a topical treatments proactively. So you know, don't wait until you think the horse has thrush. Um, if you're there a few times a week and and want to pick it out and treat it with um, something kind of if you're doing it a lot, you, you probably want to stay away from the non, like, uh, stay away from the caustic products that, that, that kill living tissue as well. Um, stick to something a little milder, but I would say, uh, you know, treat the bottom of the feet. Um, years ago, I didn't put a lot of uh, faith in any of the products that you'd paint on the outside of the hook wall. Um, I thought that was, you know, it, it certainly made them look pretty, but I, I didn't really think it did a whole lot. Um, I'm starting to kind of change my mind about that. Um, some of those products I do think do help a little bit. Um, and and I've, I've had some problem horses with uh, dry, shelly looking feet <clears throat> that, that do seem to respond to, uh, to some of those products. So um, that's something else that, uh, something else you can try. Um, yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, wet, wet to dry to wet transitions like that sort of thing seem to be harder on feet than just being dry or just being wet. Yeah. So, um, you know, if you think, uh, like if you did dishes by hand for 20 minutes, you know, your hands might dry out a little bit after, but if you did dishes by hand for five minutes, then stopped, dried your hands, then went back a half hour later, did dishes for another 10 minutes, so on and so forth. Um, even though you did dishes for the same amount of time in total, your hands would be a lot drier if you did and more cracked if you did that wet, dry, wet, dry, wet, dry. Yeah. Um, and I'm not entirely sure why that is, but the, the, the horse's feet seem to kind of do the same thing. So um, even things like um, things that can help if, if you know the horse is already going through a couple of wet to dry transitions a day because he's maybe he's stalled on wood shavings they're pretty dry they leach a lot of moisture out but it's spring so during the day he's out in the mud um, just you're not going to be able to fix that but maybe don't bathe him or or don't bathe him just out of habit you know I'm not saying that we shouldn't bathe or hose our, our horse's legs off but um, you know do they really need it today? And, and if the answer is, oh, maybe they can do without, then, then, you know, spare them that one more transition from dry to wet to, you know, back to dry again. Um, th those sorts of things can, can be helpful as well. Yeah, that's a bunch of good advice for anybody listening this, as far as the small things that they can do to try to help or to be preventative. And I, <laughs> In talking, I have so many more questions around like diet and nutrition and like stifles and hawks and engagement and the ways in which that we can kind of organize our horse's foot integrity. I just, I think we might have to do something short again to fit it all in for today. Um, I might wrap it here because we covered so many great topics. And I think that it was really informative for everybody listening. So I appreciate your time so much. I know that you've been really busy, um, but thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, no problem. It was fun.
Alrighty, guys, that is everything for today's episode. I hope you learned lots about what you can do to take care of your horse's abscesses or pay attention to their conformation or angles, different things that hopefully you can apply to your own equestrian endeavors. And of course, if you're interested in pursuing uh, the line of work that Chris is in, which is a farrier, I would reach out to him. I will leave his name in the show notes and any contact I have. I'm sure he'd be really happy to answer any of your questions. He's always informing my clients and teaching them about different concepts. So that's why I thought he would be excellent to have on here. And I really enjoyed this episode. I hope you did as well. As always, you can send me feedback to springinequestrian at gmail.com. And just a reminder, we have the early bird pricing open for the Echo Clinic that Chris and I are hosting on March 12th. We are aiming at educating and collaborating with equestrian entrepreneurs, trying to get their financial foundations and marketing strategies organized so that they can have profitable businesses definitely something to look at. It's www.equestrianentrepreneur.ca and I will leave the trailer for what we are doing here. Have an awesome day, guys. I will see you next week. the podcast to understand you know how is it that someone can create a business doing what they love and not end up broke and hating what they love to do because I, I was there I, I am where I am because I burnt the fuck out of our industry I never thought I would be in a time in my life where I wasn't in the barn I didn't have horses I wasn't learning the barn was my escape I was running away from life which is so interesting because over time that turned into the complete opposite. There's so many people that always say that, like there was this time that I almost quit. There was this time that I did quit and I had a year up. Well, we all do, we all quit. Like I quit, something's going on. And then of course horses drop back in. Eventually, you know, people are like, hi, you want to come ride this horse? You want to come ride that horse? Oh, do you want to help me in my business that I'm starting? And it's completely with horses. That is how I got back into it. Why can't we figure out, you know, how to make it different? Perhaps we allow people to learn from what we've gone through and they don't have to run away. Continue to push myself so hard into my business that I ended up in the hospital for six months. Put everything into horses and then been absolutely broken to the point we didn't want to be in it. You know, everyone else is doing it. Like, why can't I can also do it? And I think that goes with what we were talking about with like the perception of what people are doing versus what they're actually doing. Appear as if you have your stuff together, but your finances are showing you are again in the negative. Hi, I'm not looking at my numbers because I'm scared of what it's going to say. Your finances will literally tell you what is not going right in your marketing. We don't have to sacrifice all of our boundaries. We don't have to sacrifice our bodies. Stop giving our services and our products away for free. Like had I been doing the podcast and know all the things I know now, I would have been like, you need to just take a step back. It is normalized that we are not making money. Also normalized that we don't spend time with our horses. Build strong equestrians and we can build strong equestrian entrepreneurs without losing our love for horses. What do you offer? Learn how to leverage our numbers. This is how we're going to do 
with. Be able to choose who you want to work with. Because at the end of the day, this hobbyist approach is chipping away at our profit. Change the way equestrians are doing business in the industry. I'm going to help you create a strong and stable business within the financial side of things. We have very much the same mission.